0: This is the Doctor Who Podcast, and you are most welcome.
1: This week on the Doctor Who Podcast, we look at the power of three and ask, is three the magic number or a crowd?
0: and welcome to episode 164 of the Doctor Who podcast and I'm afraid it's a very small cast this week. Leeson has toilet and internet problems once again so I'm afraid you've got just me, James and Ian. Hello Ian. Hi James. Hello, and as we keep on trying to tell people, it's quality, not quantity, in terms of hosts on the DWP. That's correct, isn't it? Well, I think we have quantity and quality across the range of our hosts. <laughs> I've got to say that, or they'll kick me off. <laughs> well, absolutely, yes. You've been very diplomatic there. Uncharacteristically so, it has to be said. It's been a Doctor Who podcast. Anyway, this time round, we're going to be reviewing The Power of Three. Every time we flew away with the Doctor, we'd just become part of his life. Come with me. But he never stood still long enough to become part of ours. Except-
1: once. Haven't you seen them? The year of
2: the slow invasion. We have two lives real life and doctor life.
0: Our best hope now is each other. <laughs> what do we do? Choose. Three,
2: Three. Three. that's a magic number. Three, it is. It's the magic number.
0: Okay, this is a bit of a strange review episode, I think, because last week, I don't know about you, Ian, but I was trying to find things to say about A Town Called Mercy because I just sat there and enjoyed it and didn't really have anything jump out at me that made me say, oh, I must talk about that on the podcast. It was a relatively short recording. And if my notes are anything to go by this week then this podcast could go on for hours. So, um, But I think the best thing to do is to is, is to ask you to start with. What did you think of A Power of Three?
1: I was a little bit underwhelmed by this story. It went along, things happened. There were some interesting fan tidbits in there. There were some nice moments in it. But as an actual story, I thought it was a bit of a non-event. Um, I didn't think that the ultimate bad guy was particularly great it was just very forgettable to be honest with you their motivations and who they were didn't really stick in my mind much and I thought as a as a plot there wasn't a huge amount to it there was lots of things hung off of it and lots of sort of significant bits dropped in here and there and possibly in the broader sweep of things it'll be a bit more significant but uh, I thought this was a bit of a flat spot really on
0: on season seven to date yeah I'm not entirely surprised to hear that but again i I knew how much you liked Asylum of the Daleks and a town called Mercy and those are very big episodes either in the story that they're telling or the way that they look and this is altogether a slightly smaller scale it um it, if Asylum was the you know sci-fi blockbuster and dinosaurs was a silly romp in space and a town called Mercy was the Western, the power of three is the soap opera. You know, it it it's very claustrophobic, it's very character-based. It feels almost as though the writer is aiming for a kind of closing time or the lodger kind of feel to the story. And, and, and for me, I would say it's been the weakest of the episodes in season seven so far, which is a shame because I think after Dinosaurs, I had quite high hopes for another Chris Chibnall script. I knew that um Rory's father was gonna take a another reasonably prominent role in it again. And uh yeah, I just felt I felt as though the whole thing didn't really have much substance to it. And the resolution has got to go down as the most rushed in in the new series yet, because you know, the Stephen Burkhoff's character, I think there was about six minutes left of the episode when we first saw him. Um, and for me, it just it just didn't hit all the right buttons. And I came away from it on first viewing thinking, I'm not sure if I like that. And I watched it again and I, I liked it even less on the second viewing. It's funny you should say about it being a bit soap poppery because a feeling that I got very
1: strongly throughout the episode was it was very reminiscent of the RTD era. Yes. With absolutely. With that sort of kitchen sink elements and the fake TV clips and bringing in the celebrities like Brian Cox yeah. and Alan Sugar. It was very, very familiar from the Russell T Davis era. And I'm not saying that as a criticism of it. It stood out for me in the Moffat era as being, this isn't quite right, this is what we used to get, and now this is something, it's a new world we're in now, and this
0: harks back to the old one, I thought. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It definitely felt RTD heavy, and uh, I think that was about my third or fourth point I've written on my notes, the the newsreels as well. And, and Doctor Who, since it's come back in, in 2005, has used the newsreels around the world to info dump on so many occasions there was even a regular anchor wasn't there and again i can't remember the name of the character or indeed the um the name of the actress but every time russell t davis brought back this little info dump device they also brought back this newsreel anchor and that was the only thing was it trinity someone trinity wells it was the american uh, female news anchor i can't mm. remember her, what her name was i think the character was trinity wells and uh, i i felt yeah it, you know apart from that that it was exactly the same device really i liked a lot of the the humor in it i have to say there, there's one notable exception and that was the sequence where the doctor is running around the garden creosote in the fence and doing keepy uppie uh, with a football <laughs> You know, I, I, I just don't think that worked. The music that underlaid that as well was reminiscent very much of that used in Rose, um, kind of zany Batman WoW kind of music, and that uh, just, just didn't really appeal to my tastes. But there were some other quips, and I absolutely adore the derision and the uh, disgust on Matt Smith's face when he uttered the word, Twitter.
1: And that's apparently deliberate on Matt Smith's part. The line was written and his delivery was his own because he stayed off Twitter and and, uh, doesn't particularly like it. And indeed, apparently Stephen Moffat has just in the last couple of weeks dropped Mm. off of Twitter as well, although obviously that can't be part of this. But uh, yes, that's apparently Matt Smith's views on things
0: rather than necessarily the the writers or the creators. Twitter's been mentioned at least three or four occasions now in the last couple of seasons. First time it was mentioned was The Girl Who Waited, I think, uh, last last year. And... um, the birdie song the cube with the birdie song i mean that, that that had me in stitches that was a laugh out loud moment for me i just found everything like that really quite enjoyable you know the fact that the doctors still got fred perry shorts also, i also i i think is uh, i think is quite funny but um but the story in which it's set i'm not entirely certain what it's trying to achieve i, I think it certainly contributes to a very very subtle story arc which we'll talk about later but as a standalone story i mean i i suppose the tension slowly mounts it's uh, you know it gears up excitement um and ramps up uh, the tension it it just doesn't really make sense to me uh, particularly this um you know heart attack that it's trying to induce um you know people were dead for what minutes I think before the doctor reversed whatever effect the cubes had from the spaceship and suddenly everybody was okay again and it's it's a real shame that Leeson's not with us he's he's a nurse Um, and he'd have been able to say whether that's actually you know possible or whether people would end up having massive brain damage after being dead for so long but stuff like that I suppose you could call minor it's there so that the story doesn't get boring but uh, for me no, didn't didn't really do it for me. There was definitely some medical inaccuracy in there. If if someone's heart stopped, a defibrillator,
1: which defibrillates, doesn't start the heart, wouldn't work. <laughs> but that's a classic uh, TV and film failure. They they all do that.
0: Well, and not only that, the, when the doctor collapsed in the hospital corridor and said, "I can't go on. I need the other heart." What was the other side of the corridor? A defibrillator. Mm. And Amy just turned around and went, "Ah," oh. you know, and and that kind of convenience. Um, I, I think we saw it a little bit in Dinosaurs on a Spaceship as well. You know, um, the uh, whatever it was. Now it needed uh, two members of the same gene pool to drive the spaceship, and it just so happened that Rory and his father was there. Yeah. And I, I don't like coincidences like that written into the plots of a story. Well, I mean, all the stories have
1: those. You you find them all over the place. But if you've got a good rip roaring story and you're enjoying it and it's moving forward at a pace you don't really care you know it's just there and you just you don't even pay attention to it when you've got I think the story that's a little bit weaker or thinner those things start to stand out more and you can think hang on a minute that that's not right or I don't particularly like the way that's worked or how convenient
0: well this is it I think it just depends how well these coincidences are brought to brought to the screen now I'm sure it was done for timing reasons but bear in mind this episode was just over 40 minutes it wasn't even 41 minutes long what would have stopped Amy having to stop a nurse for instance who's passing with a defibrillator I mean even that would have been more credible than it just been left in a corridor I'm sure you're not supposed to leave things like a defibrillator unmanned in a corridor either Mm. (laughs) are you
1: I I wouldn't have thought so on a broader sense I thought the whole threat of the episode I mean in terms of the genuine world's wide threats you saw four or five grainy images of people falling down on a CCTV camera and then the resolution was seeing four or five grainy people on a CCTV camera stand up again. <laughs> and yeah, I I mean, I, I, and we, again. we've seen similar things before when you had the sicker acts and everyone was trying to jump off the buildings, mm-hmm. or you had everyone in the world turning into the master. It's another one of those very RTD-esque threats to the world. But they seem to have done it on a real budget this time because previously you saw big rows of extras all at risk, and here you saw a CCTV image of someone falling over. It was a bit... For saying a third of the world just
0: died, it was a bit underplayed, I thought. I agree. And I, I I think certainly the Christmas invasion was very much at the forefront of my mind as well when I was watching this. And I, I think mainly because that line, a third of the world's population, all of a sudden was just a direct lift from it. But there were other things as well. I mean if you look at partners in crime, the adipos, you know, seemingly innocuous, cute aliens suddenly ended up all over the planet and then presented a real threat. And the Sontaran two-parter that Helen Rayner wrote a couple of years ago, everyone was suddenly carrying around an alien sat-nav, and I can't remember what the name of that was now. But th- this was the same kind of thing, you know, an alien incursion by stealth, people finding it quite funny almost. I don't know. Something just, just stuck in a craw a little bit whilst, uh, whilst watching this. But, um, but let's, let's talk about Amy and Rory a little bit, because I think, This story was really about their relationship and solidifying it, really. And uh, I I found it quite interesting uh, where it started because this was set in the month of July. Now, that's halfway through Pond's life, and it certainly adds to my theory about these episodes not happening in chronological order for the Ponds. For the audience and the Ponds, the events that we're seeing played out in these episodes are not happening in sequence, I'm wondering whether or not we're going to go back and revisit the point at which Amy and Rory split up at some point, Because I think, as everybody has commentated in, in over the last couple of weeks or so, it felt very fast within asylum. One minute they were getting along, the next minute they were getting divorced. And I, I've always wondered whether there is a slightly longer, more detailed story to be told. We're just not getting it all in in linear order. I'm not convinced because
1: there was a 9-month gap between was it dinosaurs and mercy or before the between asylum and dinosaurs. And if you put 9 months onto asylum happening in September, it's and then have another couple of adventures, it's actually reasonably plausible that July is when the doctor would land again next. And actually Ooh. if if you say that this started in July, and then they've seen the Doctor pretty much constantly throughout the next year.
0: Where's the nine-month gap? And well, I- there isn't There isn't a nine-month gap. I think, first of all, um, we, we don't know when asylum takes place. We just know that part five of Pond Life takes place in September. And secondly, dinosaurs and Mercy, I don't believe, happen in sequential order either. There is a line. There is a line at the beginning of A Town Called Mercy, which I'll play for you now.
2: It's a street lamp. An electric street lamp about ten years too early. It's only a few years out. That's what you said when you left your phone charger in Henry VIII's en suite. Doctor.
0: So Rory dropping his phone in Henry VIII's bedchamber is clearly in the Doctor's past as events play out in a town called Mercy. Now we see that scene in the following episode. So as far as the Doctor is concerned, without a doubt, the power of three is set before a town called mercy okay you can't really argue
1: with that this this could be another jacketed doctor so um, i'm i'm not going to argue with you after what happened
0: with tom (laughs) (laughs) well no but i wasn't quite right there either it has to be said but i've I, i can compound this a little bit i have to say now did amy and rory really get divorced in asylum i don't think they actually got divorced because
1: uh the papers had been prepared I think that Amy had signed the papers, yes. but the person she handed it to them to was a Dalek agent who immediately zapped her away to the Parliament. So, no, I, I, no,
0: no, she handed them to Rory, and Rory waved at
1: her as he left oh, the room. Okay, I'm, I'm misremembering. In which, but but then of course Rory got straight onto a bus where he was zapped away to the Parliament. I think it's probably reasonable to assume that the papers were either lost in the mix, or at the very least, Rory still had them at
0: the end, and having reconciled, he would throw them away? Yeah, well, this is the question. Would he throw them away, or or could he have posted them on the way <laughs> uh, to catch the bus? We don't know. The reason why I'm asking the question is because we see in The Power of Three a wedding anniversary. Mm-hmm. Now, does that mean if they... Let, let's assume they did get divorced just for a second, because it works better. Why would they be having an anniversary after their divorce? It either means they didn't get divorced, which I, I, I do take it is probably the more likely of the two options, or... The Power of Three is set before Asylum for the Ponds.
1: I just took the anniversary as being a framing device because there was a very clear element of placing each part of this story, which is spread over a whole year. It's a very long story Mm -hmm. um, in a particular point in time. And we know exactly when their wedding anniversary is because from the 11th hour onwards it was always it's on i can't remember the day now but it was a particular date (laughs) that was the whole theme of that season was it was that date and then we saw it happen on that date and of course the world ended or the universe ended so i just figured this out that because it's covering a whole year they had to cross that point in time and this was just saying okay rather than have a little red graphic come up saying what month it is we'll just use the
0: narrative to say what what date it is now but you could be right i'm I, I i don't know i think it's interesting because certainly the opening scene is set before the last two episodes of pond life and there's no doubt there because you see the calendar part 1 of pond life has may on screen as it's played out part 2 has june part 3 has july and then august and september And The Power of Three started in July. Now, I know, therefore, it goes over for the next 12 months or so, but the period that the Doctor took Amy and Rory away, and that was in the middle of their wedding anniversary party, I think all manner of things could have happened there. And I'm beginning to think now, the Doctor, I mean, you remember the conversation the Doctor had with Amy, just outside the Tower of London, about... Amy getting tired of uh, travelling with the Doctor or thinking she needs to settle down a little bit, I think the Doctor doesn't want to accept that. So rather than just assume that it's going to end, he goes back on the Pond's timeline before they've become completely of the view that they need to stay in one space and time and takes them on adventures that way. So as far as the Doctor is concerned, he can just go back to the gaps Uh, that he wasn't with Amy and Rory, and fill them up with more adventures. If he's economic with the information that he gives, they don't need to know whereabouts in his timeline he's visiting them from. And he can go back and do that as many times as possible. And I have a feeling, when everybody was saying how inconsequential pond life actually was, that that was the premise that it was establishing, that the Doctor can pop up in Amy's and Rory's life at any point out of order.
1: I'm prepared to accept that there's something going on here because Moffat's too good at <laughs> dropping these things in. This is sounding a bit over complex to me though when I think back to the jacketed doctor is the the obvious previous yeah. example of this where Tom and a number of other people accurately pointed out ah that's an inconsistency there's something there. And they were right, there was something there. However, in fandom, then this enormous tapestry emerged where people were finding jacketed doctors in every <laughs> single episode. And, you know, it was the guy who opened the door on the roof in the World War II in Victory of the Daleks, and it was the, the, the person in the window through it from the left over here and all mm, kinds of weird, mm, wonderful mm. stuff, and as if it was in everywhere. And when we actually got to the end, it turned out, no, that was it. That was the only example of well, of what Stephen Moffat was doing there although there was something it wasn't anywhere li- near as big and complex as us fans no, were trying to No and turn I don't it think into. it will be
0: really big and complex I think it's in fact it may not even be addressed head on it might be just be something that fans can pick up on because the casual viewer is not going to mind at all frankly I mean there was a heartback here right at the very end I mean we've yet to talk about Kate Lethbridge Stewart or Kate Stewart but the doctor saluted her And if you go all the way back to, oh, I can't remember when it was now, was it Time of Angels? Sometime in season five, Amy says, you saluted, you never salute anybody. You know, and I think that was a nice nod. And again, no one else is going to pick that up apart from fans. And the reason he's saluting is because she's the Brigadier's daughter. And it adds that, Extra degree of of pathos there, but I I'm, I'm interested. I mean, maybe I have blown this out of all proportion. But the only thing I can say and be reasonably certain about is because of that line at the beginning of a turn called mercy, the power of three is definitely set for the doctor beforehand. It, it certainly could be, or
1: there's certainly something strange going on with the timeline here. I mean, the other impression I got during power of three is that there were other adventures scattered throughout this period so this story goes over a whole year it's quite possible this spans the whole series and the other episodes are all happening possibly in sequence through it and then it lands at its correct point in time as we perceive it in the timeline now i mean i think you're right there's something funny going on with time here but i'm not sure I think we're possibly slightly overcooking it with going into the the (laughs) complexities that are there. Maybe.
0: When you say we're overcooking it, you mean me, don't you? Uh, Possibly. (laughs) It's it's the royal we for fandom. Yes, fair enough. Yes, the other thing that was mentioned, or one of the many other things that were mentioned, is that uh, this is ten years now since Amy met the Doctor in Ledworth. And I was wondering whether or not that had any significance as as well.
1: I thought it was very interesting. Uh, As it happens, just before coming to record this, I watched uh, The Rebel Flesh with my kids, because they're still working through season six. And it was actually interesting, coming off the back of uh, watching The Power of Three, you can see the difference in Amy. She's definitely an older person and an older character in this season than she was in last season. And I'm willing to bet that if you go back to uh, season five, you'd see the contrast again. And I think the the production people have, have come out and said that they actually framed it this way, that, that, that you could see these people going on a journey through their lives. And it was uh, stated out loud by saying they've been 10 years adventuring with the Doctors. And I, I took that to mean... 10 years of subjective time to them in terms of the time they've spent on other planets and other
0: worlds and in the TARDIS and things like that rather than 10 years elapsed on Earth. Um, uh, oh, well, I I assume the latter. No, I mean, she said it was 10 years since Ledworth. So when, when the Doctor came back into her life uh, after initially dropping in we're on Amelia Pond when she was a child.
1: I, I took it to be that if you started a stopwatch in the beginning of the 11th hour, or no, rather when... Uh, no, sorry, the end of the 11th hour, of course, is when Amy is uh, grown up and hung it on Amy and has left it
0: running the whole time. Oh, I see. That would be no 10 idea. years, rather than a stopwatch left in Ledworth would have been 10 years. Yeah, the Doctor doesn't keep track of time like that. It's far too organised and structured. And there's no way that Amy would know about it. And I mean, the Doctor certainly wouldn't. So I, I, I took it to be the fact that it was 10 years since she knew the Doctor or she, the Doctor came back um, uh, to see her in a um, policewoman's uniform. And I think you're right. I, d- I do think the story has followed Amy's maturing, if you like, since that point. And yes, this season, season seven in particular, she's portraying the character in a slightly different way. Yeah, she's still got that sassy streak, but it's not so overt. And uh, she's still got a sense of humour um, that she'll resort to before dealing with you know the real crux of any situation she finds herself in, but she's much more confident. She's much more self-assured. She's slightly less manic, uh, a, a companion than she used to be. And for me, this what Stephen Moffat did. I think back in season two was was given a chance to put the whole idea that we're now seeing on screen into one episode, and that's when we got the girl in the fireplace. You had the Doctor be part of Madame de Pompadour's life from a very young age all the way through to death. And Moffat, since he's got his hand on a control tiller of this show, he's now thinking, I'm going to do that again, but I'm going to do it properly. <laughs> and the Doctor's popping in and out throughout Amy's life. And I think because it's a much longer story to tell, um, there's many different diversions to, to to go off along the way. Uh, it, it It's that much more enthralling and captivating a story for the audience than just a 45 minute episode but fundamentally i i, I think all of the matt smith era so far that's included amy has been a retelling of a much shorter story uh that moffat's already told well of
1: course he's telling it twice now because we also have river song story into a mingling with it as well so it's getting very timey-wimey
0: Oh, absolutely. But then again, Moffat's never shied away from that. And I think one thing that Russell T Davies and Stephen Moffat have got in common is that they won't let continuity and what they consider to be things that only fans will be concerned about get in the way of telling a story. There, there was a reference to, to Zygons here. I think certainly when that was mentioned, uh, almost as a throwaway remark, I think that was that was during a seven-week jaunt, wasn't it, uh, when a doctor took yes. Amy and Rory um, away. I kind of thought, oh, is this going to be the Zygon episode? Because it's been strongly rumoured it's going to be Zygons. And the guys with square mouth, I thought they were going to be Zygon agents of some some kind, particularly when you saw all of those prostate bodies in the spaceship. You just think, well, they're duplicates. They're duplicates of Zygons on Earth. I think that was Moffat playing with us again because there has been loads of
1: rumours about the Zygons floating about. I'm sure Moffat's on record a couple of times saying he would love to bring the Zygons back. And I think that one-liner was it. I, as we've seen a few other examples of one-liners <laughs> thrown in just as a bit of meat for the fans, I think that was it. I think that was him saying, well, I said I'd bring them back and there they were and that's all you get to see. Mm. That The porters in the hospital and taking the bodies away, I thought that was just all part of this sort of year-long studying the race before you wipe them out thing, which seemed a bit uh, overdone. I mean, there's been plenty yeah. plenty of foes who've been able to figure out how to wipe out the human race without spending a year studying them first to, to do it. Um, so there, there must be a remarkably
0: ineffective uh, pest controllers if it takes them that long all the time. I mean, that that was all summarised in the end. It was very, very rushed. And, uh, you know, the chakra, this, this legendary Time Lord myth serving something called the tally, you know, it just kind of... Felt really, really rushed, and it was a whole info dump at the end of the episode. And again, the Doctor just solved things within inside of about a minute, something along those lines, and then you're drawn into this. What's supposed to be, I guess, a quite emotive and um, heartwarming scene, you know, the, the the goodbye scene between the Doctor and uh, Lethbridge-Stewart's daughter. But uh, but let's let's talk about Lethbridge-Stewart's daughter a little bit. I mean, it's I I think it's I think it's fantastic that we've got that connection to the Brigadier and to Nicholas Courtney, if you like. But for the writers to call the character Kate is is even better because, of course, when we have actually seen lethbridge stewart's daughter on screen before she was called kate and that was in um, a spin-off um called downtime oh right i i wasn't aware of that uh, i lose
1: my some points from my doctor who card um <laughs> i don't worry so did i i, mean, I had to look it up <laughs> <laughs> I, I loved having kate stewart in there it was completely unexpected totally blindsided me and I have to say, I felt myself welling up again, just as I did after the wedding of River. It was the wedding of River Song, wasn't it? When he went to try and visit Lethbridge Stewart and found that he had yes, died. Yes, I think
0: so. Certainly towards the end of last season. Uh, yeah. And I think the the pair of those was a
1: really, you know, a really nice way of commemorating what was a a great character in the show. And that was one of the real highlights of this show for me. Actually, was uh, having that reference. The only thing that I thought slightly let it down, though, because it was that this had been trailed as the return of UNIT. Where was Unit? I, I just saw a bunch <laughs> of random guys in black SWAT uniforms running around in the yeah. background. They didn't do anything. They didn't really... I mean, you had a guy in the glasses. It it didn't in any way feel like Unit, even compared to the modern era Unit, which was a bit... You know, you think back to the Sontaran Stratagem, where Unit featured quite heavily. Yes, it was a bit disconnected from the classic era Unit, but you could still see some similarities. It was, there was still something identifiable there, whereas this just seemed to be some random group of um,
0: soldiers. I, I didn't get any continuity at all, other than the character of Lethbridge Stewart herself. This this is kind of what I was meaning earlier. Neither Stephen Moffat or Russell T. Davis is going to get bogged down with explaining what unit is, if it gets in the way or it's inappropriate, to, to telling the story. And the only thing that was required here was that the Doctor knew... This lady or this woman's father really, really well. I and mean, then people can go and look it up if they're that bothered about it. So, yeah, I mean, you're right. It was heralded as a return of unit, which which it wasn't. Um, unless you describe unit as underground bases. Now, as far as I'm aware, there's now an underground base, or so there has been either a unit or a tortured underground base in the Thames Barrier, Canary Wharf, the Tower of London, and even in Rose, I think there was a big underground area. Um, Beneath the London Eye. And I think in Sarah Jane Smith's story, there was a base beneath a mountain. Was it Ben Nevis? I can't remember now. But there are underground bases everywhere. Well, absolutely. I mean, you, you trip over one and fall into another.
1: I, I I wouldn't have expected to see the whole continuity of unit brought in, but just having the same uniforms would have been simple. And because <laughs> unit's been used several times in the modern series now, because you had um, the Planet of the Dead as well, which brought them back. Modern era viewers would get that, you know. And I'm not. You don't have to do masses and masses of info dump. Just making them look and sound familiar while staying the same lines would have worked just as well. And for the sake of a costume change or two. It could have been. It could have felt more like the unit we've seen before, rather than
0: just some random people in black outfits. Mm. I mean, it wasn't a big deal, but I thought it was a little bit of a letdown. It, it didn't didn't really bother me hugely, and I, I like the idea of a covert organisation not being instantly recognisable. Um, <laughs> I think that would be just quite a novel idea for Doctor Who. Um, although I suppose unit aren't supposed to be that covert in in this time period in in Doctor Who's time stream. But certainly, I, I love the way that uh, Gemma Redgrave portrayed um Kate Stewart I thought that was fantastic I I believed the performance perfectly they got her age right I think as well it makes you it makes you wonder where was Lethbridge Stewart's daughter all of the time when he was working uh, either as a consultant or living with Doris in um battlefields you know there was no reference there but at the same time you you just kind of think yeah this does work it doesn't need to be highly thought out or really structured well you don't need to know the lethbridge stewart family history in order to appreciate that this is the daughter of someone who the doctor was really good
1: friends with and and moffat's very good at doing that of doing the calls back to the old series in a light touch way that is satisfying to the fans but isn't going to turn off people that don't know or care about this old stuff so i thought yeah that was very nicely judged and uh i very much enjoyed it i, I doubt we'll see it uh reprised any and i think that's fine to be honest with you it was a nice moment and we, we don't necessarily have to go and carry it on anymore <laughs>
2: hello listen Fisher here uh, broadcasting unfortunately from uh, a time eddy an internet generated time eddy, something to do with the helmet regulator I think uh, but unfortunately i 'm unable to take part in the live conversation uh, so i 'm i 'm here on my own uh, with my opinions on the power of three now it 's become a little bit of a tradition in the Moffat era to have these kind of domestic adventures uh starting with the lodger of course and then carrying on into series six with closing time and although i was less impressed with with the lodger uh and probably slightly more impressed with closing time i have grown to quite like these as i call them domestic adventures when you you see you see the doctor out of his comfort zone and uh in the sort of environment of of real life uh and this was quite well done in power three uh chris chibnall not normally uh, someone I get too excited about when I see uh, his name uh, as a writing credit, although he does seem to be getting better and better and stronger and stronger, and is perhaps beginning to show us why Stephen Moffat has invested so much confidence in him uh, and has given him quite a big role to play uh, in this series. As for the plot and the way this story sort of expanded, I, I, like, I like the slow pace of it. There was a moment early on when uh, the Doctor, uh, as initially come down and investigated the cubes, tells everyone to look at them and then disappears. That I thought we were going to be getting a Doctor Light episode, and I was a bit disappointed. Uh, but then, obviously, this isn't what we got. I um, well, yeah, enjoyed the mystery of this, enjoyed the cubes, uh, and, uh, and the slow burn as to what they were and uh, what they were doing. Uh, comedy in this episode. Very well used, not too much. Uh, Yeah, it it was it was a good balance. I thought we have the reintroduction of units, which I think were far better realised. Really. far more realistically realised than in the RTD area, where they were running around in red berets, not looking too covert, let's say. And uh, the way that they've sort of taken them into this SAS Strike Squad-style uh, riot well, riot gear, well, strike gear, uh, is, is far more realistic and probably sits a bit better, bearing in mind that they're supposed to be a sort of a covert organisation. And at this point, it would be remiss of me not to mention the appearance of Kate Stewart and the revelation that Kate Stewart is in fact Alistair Gordon Lethbridge-Stewart's daughter. And, and that was a wonderful moment for me. I was watching with my uh, other half and uh, her hand shot across to mine and we, we gripped hands and there was a, actually quite, a, not tearful, but certain lump in the throat moment. And it seemed like a really nice way to have a nod to Nicholas Courtney and, uh, and his role in the show. Uh, so I absolutely approved of that. And on the whole, absolutely approved of this episode. Um, I had a kind of nice wacky style. Uh, Mark Williams... Absolutely fabulous again as Brian Williams. Some wonderful comedy moments with him, especially when they get up to the Shakri ship and uh, he is wheeled out on the trolley, uh, bolt upright, as probably most of us would be in complete shock. Uh, there was just a wonderfully nicely played moment. Now, as for the ending... Now, this is a Stephen Kingism, uh, and allow me to explain, uh, where there, there seems... In a, in a lot of Stephen King's books, uh, you have such a wonderful setup. You have hundreds and hundreds of pages of a wonderful story uh, unfolding, and, and page turning. You, you you want to find out what happens, and slowly and slowly and slowly, you you're getting closer towards the end of the book, and there doesn't seem to be things don't seem to be tying up, and you have this moment, which is similar to uh, when you're at secondary school or high school for the transatlantic listeners where you're given an hour, you're told to do some creative writing, it's usually when a teacher had a hangover or, or wasn't feeling too involved so they could sit at the front and pretend to mark stuff and you could write stuff uh, and you would be given an hour, however long the lesson was to do some creative writing and you go you burn away with lots and lots, lots of ideas uh, and, and it's all wonderfully expanding you look up the clock you realise you've got ten minutes left so you have to suddenly go oh uh, and then this happened and then this happened and then, then, and then they all lived happily ever after uh, and this happens in a lot of Stephen King books, and this, I fear, happened towards the end of Power of Three. We had the big reveal of the shattery ship, which was um, uh, one dimension to the side, orbiting the Earth. Stephen Burkhoff arrives. I didn't see that one coming. Uh, it took me a couple of moments to realise who it was, and I thought, I can't believe they've got Stephen Burkhoff. And then he's only on screen for for five, five minutes, so it must be five minutes at the tops, which, to me... Um, seemed a bit... I mean, maybe that's all they could get him for, uh, and that's probably the case, in which case I would rather have Stephen Burkhoff for five minutes than have somebody else uh, for, you know, somebody of a a lesser acting quality for for 20 minutes. But it did seem a little to me like buying an iPhone and using it as a doorstop, uh, which was a shame. um, And the the end just seemed to tie up a little bit quickly. So if I had to give this story a star rating, well... Well, well, I wouldn't, because uh, that's a really lazy journalism trope. But So I can look at this in terms of the series so far and I would say I enjoyed this uh, slightly more than I enjoyed Dinosaurs on a Spaceship but that is not to say that uh, that I didn't enjoy Dinosaurs on a Spaceship and in the grand scheme of Doctor Who, this this is a good, solid episode with a slightly unsatisfactory, rushed-feeling ending. But then, endings are so hard to do, aren't they? As I'm about to demonstrate right now before your very ears with the stumbling end to this segment. I mean, I suppose I could carry on talking for a little bit longer, but the producer would probably just fade me out, because it was only meant to be a five-minute segment, and it's already five minutes twenty. Twenty-one. Twenty-two. I mean, obviously, I've got a lot more to say. I haven't mentioned The Ravens of Death. The fact that the closing scene where the Doctor, Amy and Rory go back into the TARDIS was the final scene that Arthur and Karen filmed, and there was a little moment behind the doors where they cried. The fact that Rory has been for the past two and a half years a personal role model young
0: OK, boy. I think that's about it for our review of The Power of Three. Next time out on the DWP, we're going to be reviewing what I suppose we can call a season finale, because we're not going to get another episode of Doctor Who until Christmas now. Whether or not we'll be able to release it minutes after broadcasting in the UK, as we have done with episodes 1 to 4 this year, we don't no, yet i'm afraid uh, so we'll have to wait and see if if we manage to get to see the episode and have enough time to record a review for it to go online then we will do uh, one thing that we'd like to ask irrespective of when our review of the finale goes out is for your feedback now last episode you had tom trev and michelle sit in the camper van and just argue about the feedback which is always wonderful to hear always wonderful to hear but, of course, we would much rather hear what you have to say about the episodes. Um, audio feedback is always going to get priority over written feedback on the DWP. Try and keep it under two minutes long. We don't really mind what audio format you use because Trev is a bit of a whiz at converting that into the formats that we do use. So record what you think about any of the episodes uh, that have gone out this year. Send them to feedback at the Doctor Who Podcast.com. And we hope to play some of those once again on a future DWP very, very soon. Well, Ian, it's been great recording with you. The first time that I think I've just recorded with you without any hindrance or interruptions from the others. It is remarkably peaceful, isn't it? (laughs) It is, but sometimes a little bit like the Doctor needs someone to stop him. I think I probably need someone to stop me too so maybe maybe Trev and Tom who are past masters at stopping me talk um, will they'll be back or their return will be a good thing for the DWP hopefully next week but Ian, thank you very much indeed for joining us to review at least the first four episodes of Season 7. You're welcome, it's been a pleasure to be here in the, the comfy seats. Okay everybody, we'll speak to you again next week. Have a good week, don't get too excited about the Angels. And we'll be speaking to you very soon. Bye. Bye for now. That was the Doctor Who podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it into feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care. Right, well, that's about it for our review of the Power of Three. A little bit underwhelmed, I think, is the general consensus in the campervan annex here. Although I have to say, Ian, I'm not quite sure how you sit in this annex week on week. I much prefer my big plush, comfy chair. Just through into the main. No, this is crap. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely. <is> crap. <laughs> <laughs> no, let's start.